This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us again. When we talk about the radical sexual insanity in our culture, we often cite Romans chapter 1, which details what happens when God gives man over to a depraved mind. But Romans 12 is also important to cite when discussing this issue because the first two verses, in fact, have to do with thinking properly about truth. And verse 2 says, for example, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is the same God who told us to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But when a culture has eschewed reality and has stopped thinking properly, that has all sorts of dark implications. And we're seeing them play out right before our very eyes. We're going to talk about this today with Dr. Anthony Esselin. He is professor of literature and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts in New Hampshire and is out with a really great book. It's called Sex and the Unreal City, The Demolition of the Western Mind. Dr. Esselin, thank you so much for joining us. Us. Thank you, Janet, for having me. Well, we are dwelling, as you say, in Unreal City, and I like, I like this designation. How do you define Unreal City? Uh, well, as I say in the book, uh, uh, a man does not always have a firm grasp upon reality. I mean, we're fallen creatures, and in the best of times, um, we're going to fall prey to lies and delusions, uh, fantasies, and so forth. But uh, but in our time, I think uh, it's it, there's a different character to it. Um, y- you might in old times be fooled about what was real, but you never doubted that there was such a thing as reality. Right. Uh, and about ordinary things, um, you could not be fooled, right? I mean, uh, the, the ordinary things that any child knows, that there are boys and there are girls, there are men and women. Right. Um, now we, uh, we have... We have thought ourselves into a stupidity that uh, previous ages could never have conceived because right. it's, it's, it's not just removed from the fullness of reality. It, it denies reality at the very root. And um, much, of our, much of our unreality has to do with these particular issues uh, regarding sex and marriage and, and uh, raising of children and... Um, that it it boggles the mind. I mean, you almost can't keep up with it. It's like a it's it's like a chaos that that keeps falling apart under your feet. You think you've reached some low level, and all at once the floor cracks beneath you, and you fall ever further. Exactly. I know it's very hard to keep up with it. And just when you thought that you'd hit peak insanity, somebody goes a step further and then you wonder how far do the goalposts eventually move before you can't even have language to describe it. I mean, I feel like we're almost in those waters already. Yeah. Yeah, I think we are. Um, there's uh, it, you, you almost can't even ask people what the principle is. Hmm. Um, the, uh, upon which they base their view of the world, because they 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 really don't have any. It's 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 all passions, and um, 
since there there is no principle, I mean, that, you know, that there's no bedrock to reach. Um, it's 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 just just a further and further chaos. Um, these the, what we have here are people who deny the very existence of principles. Yes, and um, well, there we go. I mean, the, the, what what limit is there? Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, if God exists, because this is what you say in your book, if God exists, then the city that doesn't know God can hardly be expected to know itself. Would you say this is really the essence of the problem? This is how these minds got unmoored from reality because they've moved further and further away from the concept of God? Yeah, well, um, I think so. And I I can quote Chesterton for for suggesting this to us, right? That um, the problem with the problem with modern man is not that he has ceased to believe in God. Uh, he, he, having ceased to believe in God, he ends up being an easy mark for any confidence man that comes along. True. He ends up believing in anything. Right. Um, I mean, look at, the, look at the crazy things that people now try to found their lives upon, right? Um, your your uh, sexual inclinations that come and go, um, crystals that supposedly have magic powers, uh, uh, politics, which is, um, in our time especially, eminently the realm of the unreal, um, sloganeering and so forth. I mean, th- think of the stupidities that people believed, um, that, that, uh, that, that Soviet socialism bring happiness and plenty <sighs> yeah. to hundreds of millions of people, even while people were starving in the Ukraine under Stalin's thumb. Right. I mean, uh, the, 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 the insanities that people have believed in the 20th century make um, the most superstitious peasant of the Middle Ages look like Einstein. You're right. You're so right about that. I mean, you mentioned socialism, for example. I've had the experience, I can literally show somebody information about what happened in the Ukraine, you know, the Great Famine and Stalin, or anything about Lenin or any other communist country, Mao, you know, anything you go to in history about communism. It's as if they can't even read it, take it into account, think it over, and then say, well, maybe there's some room for discussion here. The, The true believer in the unreal city, it seems, just has a passion, like you said, well, that, that's what's fair. That's what's equal. I'm going to have my paradise. Well, how in the world can you hold to a paradise when you look at what the paradise and its philosophy behind it actually yielded in human history? It doesn't make any sense. No, uh, it doesn't. And, and these people, um, they, uh, it's, I, I have this argument with people all of the time. They say, well, you know, why do you, why do you claim what you do? Um, about the the impossibility of this or that social system, which is usually fantasy, uh, the possibility that will work. I say human nature is not like that, right? Mm-hmm. Now there are there are a couple of ways to learn about human nature. One is through uh, hard experience. That is, um, you're out among human beings all the time, getting something difficult or dangerous done. Like, for instance, a uh, hundred years ago, you're out with a bunch of guys trying to clear a field, um, chop down the trees and get the stumps out of the ground. It might take you weeks to clear out a field. Um, with animals, too, oxen to pull the stumps out by chains, right? You, you learn about what 
people can do together, what can be accomplished, how to get people to work together. It either comes to you from there or it comes to you from an encounter with great works of literature mm-hmm. that are about mankind. But people in our day, they don't have either either, either avenue. That's true. They're not reading <laughs> uh, the great old books, and they don't um, work in the dockyards or out in the fields or on a ship. Um, they don't have those experiences, so they're 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 easy game, easy game for the confidence men of ideology. Well, that's and a, for fantasy. That is a really good observation, and that's long bugged me that we have increasingly a populace that doesn't read. But again, this goes back to what you discuss having to do with the you know the demolishing of the Western mind and the collapse of college education. I mean, how much of the blame for this can be laid at the feet of academia? Oh, quite a lot, quite a lot. Um, I'm not the first person to say that uh, there are some ideas that are so stupid, only intellectuals can believe them. <laughs> um, certainly a farmer could never believe them. But a farmer, is, a farmer would be bound by the severe and unforgiving realities of nature round about him all the time. The farmer can't theorize that 400-pound boulder to move he knows that you can only move it if you apply 400 pounds of force and more um, to get rid of its friction from the ground and all that. I mean, he, he knows these things, even if he can't express them mathematically. Um, uh, but, but, but intellectuals who, who, who don't read the great old books and who don't have the kind of personality-forming uh, experiences that college students of old might have had that they've actually fought in a war for instance yep we're going to come right back take a brief break dr anthony eslin sex and the unreal city is his book will come back right after this on janet mefford today This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent his son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's word to bible believers around the world for only $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom, thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. 
Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. And now through a match, your gift is doubled. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you and great to have with us Dr. Anthony Esselin. He is professor of literature and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts in New Hampshire and is out with a great book called Sex in the Unreal City, The Demolition of the Western Mind. Dr. Esselin, we were talking about this before we ran to the break and you were lamenting the fact that we've got this chaos in academia and the fact that you don't have the upcoming generations reading these great books that we all, I mean, I remember having to read all of them growing up and I'm not that old, but you know, it's not the same in education anymore, even when you go into the younger grades. Who do you think that people ought to be reading when they're going to school? Some of these greats, you know, you think of Shakespeare and Milton and Dante, of course, all of these greats. But are there any others you think really ought to be mandatory for kids to read? Well, um, all of the works of Charles Dickens, right? Yes. Um, we, we had for a long time uh, uh, fiction that could be read by children without any embarrassment um, and that told truths about human beings, right? Mm-hmm. So there's Dickens. Dickens is, tr- is just tremendous, yeah. May, maybe the greatest novelist who ever lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to be that old to start reading Dickens. You don't. Uh, or uh, uh, on, a, on a lighter side, Robert Louis Stevenson, or uh, more serious than Stevenson, but also you know aimed for 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 young people is Rudyard Kipling. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Jane Austen, right? Once the kids get a little bit older, get interested in in love and marriage. Uh, before novels got pornographic, <laughs> um, you've got you know a couple hundred years of them, and you also have the great poetry of our heritage. And I've been trying to tell people poetry is dynamite for for forming the imagination. You don't have to read 600 pages. Yes. Um, there are poems that you can read in five minutes and maybe maybe remember them, commit them to memory. Uh, poems of Robert Frost. Mm-hmm. They're quintessentially American. Um, uh, basically, all of, uh, all of literature that wasn't committedly anti-Christian or that didn't become uh, uh, pornographic or obscene or, uh, uh, you know, in other ways, destructive. Uh, all of this could be put before, before young kids. Um, John Sr. came up with a list called the, the Thousand Good Books mm-hmm. in various categories and separated for um, appropriateness for age. And I recommend that list to everybody. Excellent. That Those are all great authors. And, you know, you mentioned Dickens, and that was always, you know, we all had to read Great Expectations. I remember having to go through Bleak House when I was a senior in high school. That was like an 800-page book. Yeah. But, but it was a great book. And, and that's that's the problem. Now we have the cancel culture, which has entered the scene. And so you have all of these activists who say, you got to get rid of the white men. Well, when you're doing that, you are omitting some of the greatest writers ever, not because they're white, but because they wrote great books. And then if you have to use some sort of diversity, you know, mechanism for deciding who you're going to read, that's that's not even about literature anymore. That's about identity politics. 
Yeah, and it makes you an idiot. I mean, can imagine being in 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 Rome. Uh, you're right in front of St. Peter's. Um, you're in St. Peter's Square, and somebody says to you, "Hey, you know what? Uh, I have a special ticket. We can go to the Sistine Chapel. There won't be any tourists there. We can take our ease." We can spend an hour there just looking around, and I've got a guide who will come and tell us what the paintings are and what's going on in them. Um, how would you like to come? And you reply, oh, no, I do not want to see the paintings of Michelangelo and the others. They were all white men. <laughs> Ridiculous. Well, you're an idiot to yeah. say a thing like that. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. It, it's insane. And, and it's very hard. Again, you're back with the same problem to try to reason with people like this is very difficult. I, I mean, do you think that academia actually is salvageable at this point? Or do you think it needs to be, in most cases, just reestablished from the ground up? And, and I mean, where are we on that scale, do you think? Uh, yeah, uh, most of it needs to be burnt down. Yeah. Uh, burnt to the ground and the, and, the, and the ground sowed with salt, so nobody will be able to use that again. Um, some, there are some small schools that, uh, uh, and they're, they're Catholic, sometimes um, uh, Christian and not Catholic, that are committed to um, what's called a classical education now, but it's really just basically an old a, a, an old-fashioned education in arts and letters. Yes, right? Right. My school, the Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts, is one. Um, those places are bright spots, and we ought to be sending our money to them and not to Georgetown and Fordham and Holy Cross and the other places. They've long abandoned their uh, Christian and Catholic heritage, and frankly, they're lousy places mostly for, for arts and letters, quite apart from the faith, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, I, those places are almost irrecoverable. Uh, most most schools are irrecoverable. The public school, this whole system, is irremediable. Um, unless you're talking about charter schools, and then there may be some some reform going on there. But otherwise, the whole system is. Uh, the whole system is bankrupt. Yeah, I agree. Well, and you look at the public school system, K through 12, and one of the things that you discuss, obviously, is things like the transgender movement, the whole LGBT activism that's just infiltrated everything. Here we have the transgender movement, which you, I think, rightly say is just the overheating of feminism, which is totally right. But one of the characteristics that is inherent in accepting that there is such a thing as a transgender, which there isn't, is a denial of the physical body and the yeah. actual differences between male and female. How do you see the the mind that will accept that you can turn a man into a woman through body-altering surgeries and hormones and people actually think you're going to come out the other side as the opposite sex? Why are we accepting that when... When pressed, they probably would have to admit, yeah, you really can't do that. It's just cosmetic. No, yeah, you can no more do that than change a dog into a cat. Right. Um, Why we do that is because we, um, well, it's a a sort of cultural and suicidal despair. Uh, We no longer believe in anything. I mean, if we were really alive to how beautiful each sex is in its distinct way, we would no more want to do such a thing to them than we would want to climb up on some scaffolding and slather uh, all kinds of uh, uh, paint on, let's say, 
the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Good point. Um, just, just vandalize the Sistine Chapel. We wouldn't want to do that. Well, what we essentially done is to vandalize the body. Um, and it's because we are numb to its beauty and its reality. Uh, and uh, and that's, that's one of the effects of the sexual revolution that nobody foresaw. You know? Yeah, that's very uh, true. Yet, yet another, yet another uh, uh, thing to, to think about in this continuing calamity. Yeah, it's very true. Where do you see it headed? Do you think much about the future and where the insanity leads five, ten years from now? I know it's going at warp speed already, but yeah. w- what happens next, do you think? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, the, the insanity is so quick, it outstrips, uh, it outstrips prediction and satire. Um, you know, what yesterday you, you made a joke about and everybody laughed, tomorrow is going to become, uh, oh, well, yeah, sure, everybody knows that. Um, I, I, I think the chaos continues. Uh, I, uh, am, I have, I hope it's not the same thing as optimism, so uh, I'm not optimistic at all about the, about the near future. Um, I, have, I have hope. But hope is the theological virtue, right? And yes. uh, I, I think we're done for, um, unless there is, unless God gives us the grace for a wholesale spiritual renewal, renewal and revival in in, in the West. We're done for. Yes. It's, it's over. Yes. Yes. And yet, what about the health of the church? You talk from a Roman Catholic perspective. I'm talking from an evangelical Protestant perspective. It's awfully dire on our side of the fence. Uh, how do you see your side of the fence in that regard? I, I see the sides in, in the same in the same boat, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, that's why I write for Touchstone Magazine, because we get authors from the three great branches of Christianity, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism, and Catholic Catholicism. Um, we, we've, got to, um, we've got to hold the line on uh, creation itself. We can't say that God just gives us some moral rules, but that creation is neutral or amoral it doesn't have anything to teach us god is the creator of this natural order um and uh when we when we say oh we can it's infinitely malleable we can do anything we want with our bodies uh we that is an affront to god as as the creator and very quickly we'll lose any faith in in the creator yeah. Um, right. as creator. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a reject. We've got to go back to Gnosticism, don't we, and figure out how to refute it and how yeah. to point out all of its errors. Yeah, yeah. You know, a great resource in all of this is C.S. Lewis, um, Chesterton, and Tolkien, too, right? I mean, uh, everybody, all Christians should read th- read through the entire works of C.S. Lewis once every three or four years. Um, and then you can pick up Chesterton um Likewise, because they speak, they they say the same kinds of things. They speak somewhat different dialects, yes. uh, as it were. Um, that they they bring us back to reality, the the sheer goodness of physical reality that God created. Um, that's why it's such an effect. I mean, Saint Paul, it's what's going on in Romans chapter one, right? Yes. Um, because of sin. I mean, sin doesn't just stop with whatever lie you happen to believe now. It, it it collapses under your feet, and you you go further and further into vain imagination, empty imaginations, um, 
and uh, uh, it's, it's not stopping. It's not stopping unless uh, unless God decides, unworthy though we are, to redeem us in the West, pull us out of the fire. Uh, no, he he say, okay, you have what you want. Yeah, you have uh, what you want. Very oh. important. Yeah, read the book, Sex in the Unreal City: The Demolition of the Western Mind. Dr. Anthony Esselin, thank you so much, Dr. Esselin, and we'll be back. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Why did Paul call himself the chief of sinners? Well, he outlined it in 1 Corinthians 15.9 when he said, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And yet he goes on to say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not in vain. It was Paul's understanding of how bad he was that made the gospel such good news that the grace of God in Jesus Christ was meant for even the worst of sinners. But what about us? Do we truly understand how bad we are or do we fall into the world's way of thinking that we're just basically good people? We're going to talk about this today with author and radio host Brand Hansen. He's out with a book about it called The Truth About Us, the very good news about how very bad we are. Brant, welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you. Great to talk to you, too. Yeah. To what extent have people bought into the lie, do you think, that, that we're, we're just basically good people? Big time. And I think what's weird is for Christians to do that, because like you said, there's no precedent for that. I mean, no. Jesus said nobody's good at all. And we still do it. We're still like, oh, yeah. I mean, he's saying we're not all as good compared to him. But that's not what he's saying. He doesn't want us comparing each other to each, each, each other at all. We don't want us comparing ourselves to that other person but we do it all the time the fascinating thing to me what i think you'll get a kick out of what i wrote about in this book is all these modern cognitive psychologists that have basically come to the same conclusion that we're all so beset with biases that we almost can't see straight and we're delusional about our own goodness all just, of us yeah and i find that amazing that they're essentially agreeing with jesus two thousand years later it's so funny. Yeah, you think of Jeremiah seventeen nine. the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He doesn't make an exception for Christians. And it, it kind of tears Christianity apart if you buy into that lie, because why would you need a savior if you're a good person? Just work your way to heaven the way that the, the paganism says that you can. It's not even a, the same religion anymore. Totally. And also, how would you know you're good? I mean, who's, who's actually the judge there? You've got Jesus himself saying, no one's good. Yes. But we're saying, no, nah, I am. <laughs> like, so there's a disagreement. So that's, that's a fundamental problem if we perceive ourselves as really good people. What I was trying to say, though, in the book is it's not just like, hey, you ought to feel guilty. It's more saying, look, the reason people virtue signal so much, and we can see this in our, our culture, the less Christian it gets, the more self-righteous it seems to be getting hmm. with cancel culture and call-out culture and, uh, again, all the virtue signaling on social media. People are very self-righteous by nature. Yep. Wouldn't it be nice to be the people that are like, you know what? I gave up that game. 
I'm not trying to prove my goodness to anybody. I'm not better than anybody else. I know that Jesus made it clear. I just need to be a blessing to people. It's it's actually a way to be more childlike and stop with the pressure and the posing that so so many of us just do naturally. Yeah, you're right about that. But it's hard. Humility is a difficult thing for any sinner, any person who's ever lived. Humility is not a natural thing. We're, we're very prone to wanting to be proud of ourselves and justifying what we do and justifying how we are. And, and this is the problem. Talk a little bit about this, if you would, Brant. Flesh this mm-hmm. out a bit. The idea that we do not see ourselves the way we actually are in many, many instances. Oh, totally. Well, what they're thinking, what they, it's so interesting because they study these cognitive biases. There's, there's a bias, like essentially it's first data bias. If I, if I hear an argument and I'm like, oh, okay, I believe that, it'll take a tremendous amount of evidence to supplant that. Hmm. Like the first thing I become aware of is often the thing that just gets entrenched. There's other biases where if we say something, it's called attitude polarization effect. But if I say a position out loud, it's going to be very difficult for me to move off it because I said it out loud. Right. Like as soon as I hear me take a position, but it's wild because you can see this happen on social media, for instance, how no one wins a social media argument. Right. (laughs) No one suddenly is like, you know what? The information you've given me is convincing. Thank you. Uh, I have switched my position. It never happens because people are taking public positions, it's very difficult for us to back off what we're saying. So this becomes a problem for all of us. It has its own momentum. Yeah. And one other thing real quick about this, we can actually be addicted to being right. Hmm. I mean, you can be addicted physically to anything that gives you dopamine, a hit of dopamine in your brain, but they have shown repeatedly that being proved right gives us a dopamine hit. Right. We like it. So if we're scrolling and we see something that backs up what we already thought, we feel a self-righteous rush. Hmm. And you can see how people, why we do what we do in terms of putting ourselves in silos and whatnot. We just love being right. And if somebody says something that we already agree with slightly differently, we'll applaud. Like, way to go. Like, that's that's because it gives us a little bit of a rush. That's what we're up against in terms of us being self-righteous. That's what Jesus is calling out. It's like, you've got to break this. Yeah, yeah. Well, and something you say in the book is our belief in our goodness is our biggest self-delusion. So you would put that at the top of the charts then in terms yep. of our wrong beliefs, believing that you're basically good. That That's the biggest problem of all. Isn't that going all the way back to the garden and the serpent, the lie of the serpent? It, it totally is. And what's fascinating about this again is these people who are not necessarily believers, these cognitive psychologists are saying that is the truth about our biggest delusion. We're all deluded about certain things. Like if you, there's a classic test. If you ask people, are you a good driver? Are you better than average? <laughs> like 85% say, yes, I'm better than average. Yeah. It's the Lake Wobegon effect. It's just, that's how we perceive ourselves. But the biggest delusion of all is not driving. They say it's morality. Hmm. If you ask people, are you a good person? Are you kind of a better person than average? 90 plus percent. We're all good people. Goodness, wow. And it doesn't matter what we've done. We will rationalize it to make it good in our heads. Hmm. We so desperately want to be righteous in our, on our own scales that we will rewrite reality in real time to make it okay. Do you think we're amazingly good at that? 
Yeah, we are. Do you think part of the reason that our culture tends to do that is because we've fallen into this postmodern thinking in which you create your own truth, so therefore you can create the own truth about yourself? In other words, sure, I did something lousy to you yesterday, but my heart was in a good place. I hear people talking Mm -hmm. like that all the time, and I, I always think to myself, if your heart were in a good place, you wouldn't have done that nasty thing you did yesterday. The heart and your actions are inextricably linked. So where have we fallen apart on that whole thing? (laughs) You know what? It's so funny because people will say, well, that's just, you know, even even if I apologize, I do a faux apology, you know, like a fake apology. A lot of times like, that just wasn't me when I did that. Oh, yeah. I love that one. Look look like you. (laughs) Very similar to you. That's not who I am. (laughs) That's another one. Like, no, exactly. That's Well, I understand that. I don't think the reason we do that is because we're in a post-Christian society. Um, I think that's. I think the post-Christian society gives us different rationalizations to offer, hmm. but I think we do it because we're human. Yeah, yeah. And it's intensely human to say, "Well, at least I'm not like that other person." I mean, Jesus called out a Pharisee for doing that. Sure. This is what we all do. It's so easy. I've had people take this book and want to hit their political enemies with it. I'm like, no, this is about us. Hmm. Yes. Like, we've got this problem, and Jesus is acting like it's a crisis, like we're addicted to our own self-righteousness. He keeps calling it out, and we keep going, yeah, you're right about these other people. They're like, no, 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 me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah. that's the tough thing is going, how can I be more aware of this so that I can make better decisions? I'm not so biased towards myself all the time. I can have a lighter load. It's not all about me being a good person. Like. When do I get to that point? I can just start trying to be a blessing to other people. Well, right. And and it sometimes is hard to say that to Christians because we tend to think, even though we might theologically reject it, we tend to think now that I'm a Christian, I am better because now I believe mm-hmm. in Jesus and now I can obey him freely. But that does sometimes translate into self-righteousness. And yet Paul was the one who talked in Romans chapter seven about the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. That's part and parcel of the Christian life. You're going to continue to sin even after you're a believer. So getting a handle on that truth might be good for us as well. Totally. And you can see Jesus telling story after story to try to pop that balloon to say it's not about, he's never going the good people against the bad people. He's never doing that, but he is talking about the humble and the proud. Yes. Yes. And it can be really good, proud people. They do not fare well in his presence. Proud people are in for a big fall, and the humble he lifts up, and God will exalt them. But it actually says God will resist the proud. He sure does. Actively resist them. Yeah, you're right about that. We're going to take a very brief pause. Brand Hansen with us. The Truth About Us is the name of his book, and we'll come right back on Janet Meffer today. Maybe I can just have my baby. It don't matter what nobody said. This is the end of the story of a young mom who planned to end her pregnancy but chose life after visiting a preborn center. Preborn steps into the lives of hurting young women who are being told that a preborn baby is not a life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct answer to Planned Parenthood, helping young moms choose life. I feel like it was meant for me to have this baby. This is something God gave me for a reason. You can be a part of choosing life with young hurting women across the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 
save 400 babies by the end of the year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now, through a match, your gift of $140 will actually help save 10 babies instead of five. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent his son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers around the world for only four $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. Brant Hansen is here, author and radio host. The Truth About Us is the name of his new book, The Very Good News About How Very Bad We Are. And you were making a great point, Brant, before we went to that break about the fact that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that when we're talking about how we view ourselves as good people, it, it, it's bad enough when we do it just on a human level. But as Christians, it's even worse when we're self-righteous. And you had talked about the parable that Jesus told of the publican and the Pharisee, and that's a perfect example. Can you talk a little bit about battling self-righteousness? Because you get into some detail about that in your book. And I think a lot of us, myself included, really need this advice because it's important for us to hear it. Yeah, I feel like we are like addicts, and that's how Jesus is teaching us, and he's, he's calling it out over and over, like he's doing an intervention on us, and it just goes out you know, through, through one ear and out the other if it's still all about me and my goodness. I think it's good to realize this is a human thing. I mean, Jonathan Haidt at NYU, I quote him a lot in the book, he, he's a self-described atheist, and he said that humans are self-righteous machines. It's our default setting. Hmm. Like there's something deeply wrong with us that makes us this way. It's so wild how these people who study humans go, Jesus is right. <laughs> We've got this major self righteousness I think becoming aware of this problem, aware of all, again, some of the biases that I try to write about in the book, I try to make it entertaining, but just the way we humans behave, all of us, about how right we are and how we convince ourselves, I think it's really healthy to become aware of that. And I think the other thing is, too, even if somebody's wrong, truly, deeply wrong, like I have convictions about I'm, I'm very pro-life, for instance, I may think somebody who's, who's got a different position is completely wrong. Mm-hmm. However, when it comes to thinking that I'm a better person than them, I think Jesus never lets us get away with that. Hmm. It's always, wait a second, do you realize what God has forgiven me from yep. and right. for? Right, right. Like, it always returns to that. And it doesn't, it's not relativism. It's not saying there is no such thing as right and wrong, or we shouldn't work for justice and act for, for mercy, that sort of stuff. But it is about this idea that I'm a good person. He absolutely obliterates it. The last thought on that, I think Jesus is the smartest teacher of all time. Mm-hmm. 
I think he knows us because he created us. And if he's telling us, live humbly, you're not a good person, he's doing it because he knows this is going to give us a better life. Hmm. I, I think we'll be more childlike. We'll be more at ease once we get over this whole trip and we can laugh more and be more lighthearted. It's actually a relief to just stop with the whole, <laughs> the whole thing and just trust God with this. Yeah. Get rid of that pretense. You know what I, I was also thinking about when you were saying that was Jesus' words in Luke seventeen ten, where he said, so you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. So I, the reason I love that is because he's, he's giving us a dose of cold water, saying, even uh-huh. if you obey every single command that the Lord has given to you, you obey God perfectly. Even if you uh-huh. were perfect in the human sense, you're still an unworthy servant. It just brings yeah. you back to earth, doesn't it? There's no room yeah. for pride if you're a Christian. There just is no room no. at all. No, we're lucky to be in the party. How dare we turn to somebody else who's there? How'd you get in here? Right. No, 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 no. Right. How did you get in here? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. And it's so funny because Jesus is hammering away at this. And we still miss it and skip on to the next part. Like, do you realize that's aimed at us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a, a wonderful thing to humble ourselves. One thing that... that that I like that Height said, I was just quoting him, the guy from NYU, but he talks about how we are way less rational than we think we are. Hmm, true. We humans, we think that we have these ideals and these ideas and we follow our convictions and then we act on them and that's because we're rational. Hmm. He's like, no, we're emotional and intuitive and we use our rationality to justify whatever it was we wanted anyway. <laughs> that's what we use our smarts for. Oh boy. And there's study after study, and I mentioned this in the book, where smart people are actually in particular peril of being wrong <laughs> because they're especially adept at rationalizing horrible things. Oh, boy. Wow. That's really serious. That That's true, though. I mean, I can think of some examples of that. So sure. mit- mitigating self-righteousness, though, is a tricky thing for everybody. One of the things, and I think you mentioned this earlier, is servanthood. Give us some ideas here on how servanthood can help us in the areas of being too self-righteous. Well, I think uh, as a starter, I hope this is a good answer for the question, but as a starter, rather than thinking servanthood, like a go work at a soup, soup kitchen, all of that's wonderful. Um, praying for our enemies and blessing people who curse us <laughs> is so huge because it forces us to confront ourselves in and why we would need to do something like that. You can't casually do that. And bless means to add value to somebody's life. So imagine somebody who's your political enemy, somebody you just cannot stand, all of that stuff, who hates you, wants to do you ill will, curses you. They want to subtract value from your life. And then you pray that God would help them be successful, that he would give them everything they need, that they would, they would, they would flourish in life. That alone forces me out of myself. I would say my self-righteous position because I can't do that as a self-righteous person. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think the things Jesus is saying, like he's doing it for our own good. He knows how we work and this is what's actually going to free us um, from self-righteousness. So serving people absolutely because it forces us back into a, a role that's, 
is more in line with reality about who we are. Yeah, that is a difficult thing to do. You know, when you're blessing your enemy, it's hard to be full of yourself. That's for sure. It's the hardest. Yeah, it is the it's hardest. So hard. It is the hardest. You know, I was thinking some of the ways that we can remind ourselves how bad we are, not so we can wear a hair shirt and, and be ridiculous, mm-hmm. but... It sometimes is the case that when I read what the commandments are, the Ten Commandments, for example, reading through the Ten Commandments really kind of helps you get over this idea that you're a good person. I mean, do you do things like that where you will just go to certain sections of Scripture and that will really help remind you, yeah, you really are a sinner. You really still need a Savior. And isn't God wonderful for having sent Jesus for you? That you end end with the gospel, but you begin with the law, the way you know that the yeah. Bible says says. Yeah, I think so. The tricky thing about the law, though, too, I can look at that and go, well, okay, but at least I, at least I believe in these things. There are people out there that don't even believe in these things, yeah. or I, at least I kept six of them. <laughs> or, that won't like, help. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I skipped the Sabbath one, but by golly, I'm a good husband. Oh, man. You know how we can do that. What I love is here's Jesus on the cross, and if, in case we didn't get to point all the way up to that, as many times as he called us out on our supposed goodness, but the dude next to him has nothing to offer, mm. no spiritual resume whatsoever. And he's the one, all he does is humble himself and acknowledge that Jesus is who he is. Mm-hmm. That's it. Humbles himself. Mm-hmm. And Jesus turns to him. He's the only guy in the Bible who hears the words, today you'll be with me in paradise. Nobody else hears that. This guy had nothing. And so, to me, I love that. Like, that God would would finish that way to make it that obvious. And I think it's such a relief that we actually can spiritually grow and maybe get morally better. It's not about a scorecard, but once we release this constant grinding and low-level guilt that we've got trying to prove that we're the best person around or we're better than that guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's refreshing when you think about the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross didn't really need the law. I mean, here he was hanging on a cross for what he did. He knew he was in trouble, but he had that simple uh-huh. faith in Jesus. Hey, you really are the king of the Jews. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, there, there's something really simple about that. And childlike, which is something else you talk about when Jesus says, unless you are converted and become like children, become like this child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you speak to that just briefly? Because that's important. Yeah, I think kids like not being in charge of the world. Mm-hmm. I think there's something beautiful about it. I tell a story about my daughter when I was driving her someplace, but she didn't know where she was going. And we made a bunch of stops and it was a big hassle. And finally, we lived in Houston at the time. Finally, she was like, hey, dad, she's in the back seat, buckled in in her little seat. Where, where are we going? This is after like 45 minutes of driving. And I was pulled over by the police for speeding. <laughs> <laughs> like so there's lights. There's all this poor. I realized I never told you and I. I looked at her through the rearview mirror, and I'm like, oh, we're going to the rodeo. You like horses? Like, all right, thanks. And I thought she didn't panic that whole time <laughs> because she knew who was driving and that I loved her. She didn't have to be worried all the time. Like, if I know God will let me into the party based on his goodness and kindness, I don't have to be chafing all the time. Yep. I will grow up, yep. but that'll be him working through me. Yes, that's right. I, I will become more like him, but that'll be him working through me. Perfect. 
Yep, you're right. Brant, we got to go. But Brant Hansen, the name of the book is The Truth About Us, the very good news about how very bad we are. Thanks so much, Brant, for being here. And thank you for being with us on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time. God bless. 